0: And we're going to be looking at a a very short uh, parable uh, this morning, uh, verses seven through ten, and it is the parable of the unworthy servant. Luke chapter seventeen, verses seven through ten, and it is the parable of the unworthy servant. So let's let's go ahead and read it. Then we'll we'll uh, go back and um, we'll go back and look at it. Jesus is speaking, of course, and he says this, "...will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, we have just come out of a two-week study of the parable of the talents. And you all remember this talent, uh, a a wealthy homeowner... I mean, this parable, a wealthy homeowner goes away, he leaves one of his servants with five talents, he leaves one of them with two, and he gives another one one. And after a long time, he comes back, and the five-talent guy had turned his into ten... The two-talent guy had turned his into four, but the one-talent guy hit it in the ground and did absolutely nothing with it. And we learn a lot of pretty valuable lessons, I think, out of of that parable. First of all, we learn that we're all given different abilities and we're given different opportunities to use those abilities. Not everybody's a five-talent person, and that's okay. God designed you the way you are. Some people are put in... New York City and given huge opportunities with huge ministries, and some people are put in little backwater towns in Florida and, and little churches and that 's okay. God put you there and ordained you to be where you are and, and gave you the abilities that He gave you the que- that 's not the point. The point is what do you do with it that 's always been the point. What do you do with what He gave you, and so that 's the first thing we learn, that we're all given different abilities and they were given opportunities to use those. The second thing we learned was that we are expected to use those abilities and those opportunities to serve the kingdom and to grow the kingdom. And God delights in and rewards those who do that. You remember he said to the two-talent guy the exact same thing he said to the five-talent guy, well done, way to go, man. I gave you two things, and you took those two things and you maximized them. Well done. I mean, he, he was... God, remember we talked about it's faithfulness, not fruitfulness, that God delights in. He delights that you're faithful with where he puts you and what he gave you. It's not the amount of fruit. It's the faithfulness that delights him. But for those who do not work, we saw that there was in that parable a direct link between their not working and their salvation. You remember the guy that buried... His, his, his in the ground and, the, and the, the, the homeowner comes back and he says, cast that unworthy servant into outer darkness. That's a description of hell. Because he didn't work, he didn't use his opportunities, he didn't use his abilities for the kingdom, he was sent off into outer, outer darkness. So we saw there was a direct link between not working and, and going to hell. Now, the New Testament is very, very clear now, let me just make this very clear about the difference between merit, earning something, and grace. We mentioned this last week. Paul, Paul is extremely clear about this in his letters to the Ephesians and to the Romans. Probably the most, uh, most uh, the, the, the clearest statement that he makes is in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God Not a result of works. So your salvation, you cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. We all understand that, right? But the fact is, when you read the Bible, you'll never read a disc, there's never a disconnect between salvation and works. For example, Paul says very clearly, you're saved by faith, not by works. But then James says that if you say you have faith and there's no works, that faith is what? It's dead. So if you got faith without works, that doesn't do you any good. And if you got works without faith, that doesn't do you any good. The Bible clearly teaches that faith produces works. It is, in other words, works are corroborating evidence that we really are saved. See, our works matter. If you come along, that's what James says. You you say you got faith, show me your works. Show me what that faith is really producing in your life, and I'll believe you. See, you can't you can't disconnect those two. That's why Paul says in Romans uh, chapter two six to seven that when it comes to gets to heaven, he will render to each one according to his works. See, so our works matter, and you saw that in the parable of the talents. You can't just discount them. They they absolutely matter, um, and they'll matter not only here, they'll matter in heaven as well. Now, at this point we need to be very, very careful. Because the fact is, although that teaching is true, everything I just said is absolutely true, Anytime we start talking about works in church and how works matter and works mean something and, and works are a corroborating evidence of your faith, there is a certain sin that is lurking in each one of our lives and it wants to take advantage of that kind of of talk. And that sin, of course, is pride. Now, pride is the sin that God absolutely hates more than any other. Uh, If you go back to Proverbs chapter 6, the the, the, the guy writing the Proverbs says, there are seven things that God hates, and at the very top of the list is what? Pride. A a haughty heart or, or a proud heart. It is the sin that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. It's the sin that caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the Garden of Eden, right? Because uh, uh, Satan came along and said, you can be like God. If you just do this, you'll be like God. They, they thought we know better than Him. So it's that, it's that sin that caused them. Over and over in the Bible, it is referred to with the strongest of language. Uh, Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in their heart is an abomination. I mean, you don't get any stronger language than that in the Bible. It is an abomination for a human being to have a proud heart. Now, the thing about this sin, pride, it is, it's is—it's kind of this, it's internal, right? It's not something you go out and do. It's kind of something that sits inside of you. It's very subtle, but it's also very dominating. It's internal. Other people can't see it. It's very subtle, but it's also dominating. And it's also what's called a motivational sin. It motivates you to do other things. It motivates you. Uh, it, we talk about marijuana being a gateway drug. Well, pride is a gateway sin. Once you have pride, start building up your heart. It'll lead you into other things because you start thinking, well, I know better than the Bible. I know better than what my pastor's teaching. I know better than what God says. I, And so you lead it, you get into other things. And and the reason we're going to focus on it so much today is because it is also a sin that is very characteristic of religious people. And it's very dangerous to uh, religious people. And that's why today's parable is so appropriate. Because it is a parable. We've just come out of the parable of the talents and where people have worked and God has said, Well done, way to go. And then we come to this talent today, this parable today, and it's a parable that flies directly in the face of religious pride. So let's I want to walk right through it just verse at a time. Let's go back to verse 7. Jesus says, Well, any one of you who has a servant, now the Greek word there for servant is doulos. Okay? Now, most translations today, if you've got a newer translation, they will probably render that servant. Okay? But in the original Greek, it doesn't. It, it, it can mean servant, but what it really means is a slave. Okay, that and and so most translations today will say, "Well, we're going to render that servant," and we get we understand why, right? Because in America today, slavery uh, is is very repugnant to us because of our history and everything. In fact it's difficult to read the Bible sometime and it even talk about slavery because it has all this emotional baggage that, that comes with it. And so it's much easier to just translate that as, as servant. But, but the fact is the meaning of that word doulos in the Greek means a, a slave. Now, to Jews in the Roman Empire, back when this parable was, was spoken and this parable was written down, Slavery was just a way of life. It's been estimated that in Italy, of course, where Rome was in Italy in the first century, uh, thirty to forty percent of the population were slaves. Okay, so it was it was very common. Very uh, everybody would have been used to it. Okay, it would have just been a, a way of life. Now, people in that day generally entered into slavery. In different ways. For example, you could be born of slave parents. You could have been purchased. You could have been, uh, a lot of people went into slavery because they couldn't, didn't have enough money to pay a debt. So they were sold into slavery. Prisoners of war back then that time was a, was a huge source of slavery. They would go in and conquer a land and they would bring back prisoners of war. And there was also this concept of self sale. You see, in that day, there is no welfare system right? If you're poor, there's really nobody to help you. So a lot of people, they they couldn't put food on the table, they couldn't put clothes on their backs, so they would actually sell their self into slavery, because that way they got a meal, they got, you know, at least they knew where they were going to uh, have a roof over their head, and so they would actually do that, what was called self-sale. Now, in that day and age, slaves, we think of them as, as maybe field workers or farm hands, but in that day and age, they did everything. They could be tutors, they could be physicians, they could be household managers, they could be administrators, they could be all kind of different things. But in our parable today, this guy is none of those things. This this, this is a guy who does mostly hard labor. Look at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? So this this is a slave who does hard labor all day, out in, the, out in the field. So Jesus, in this parable, is talking to his listeners, and he's, notice what he says. Would any of you have a doulos? Would any of you have a have a servant or a slave? And he's inviting them to say, picture yourself as the master, and you've got a slave that works on your farm or, or works on your, uh, your estate. And he asks a rhetorical question. He says, does the master offer to fix dinner... For the slave when he when he comes in, or is it the other way around? Okay? Now the question is rhetorical because for the listeners, we 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 say a question is rhetorical, right? We say, for example, is the Pope Catholic? That is a rhetorical question because we don't we all know the answer, right? It's the same thing here. This is a rhetorical question because Jesus knows the answer, and his listeners know the answer. Well, no, the master would never serve the slave, the slave always serves. The master And look what Jesus said in verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you can eat and drink? You see, in that day and age, that was just the way it worked. The slave was expected to work out in the field, and then he's expected to come in, cook dinner, go change out of his clothes. You know, he's dirty, he's filthy, he's been tending the sheep... uh, He's expected to go uh, change out of his clothes, put on a nicer attire, come back in, and actually serve the master's dinner, right? See, and no one in that day would even question that. We do, but they wouldn't. They just understood that's just the way life worked. Now, when we hear a parable like this and we hear a story like this, every American bone in our body says, Well, that ain't right, doesn't it? I mean, every bone in our body says, that's not fair, that's not right. And it's because we live in a different time, we live in a different culture. We don't live in a culture of slavery anymore, we live in a culture of a boss employee. And, and as employees, we expect it to be treated fairly. I was reading this week about uh, the, the implement, I was reading an article this week about the implementation of the weekend. You know, years ago there was no such concept as that, right? You got maybe you got Sunday off, but that was it. There was no Saturday off. There was no five-day work week. You just work, 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 work. And so now we've got this weekend. We've got all these holidays. We've got minimum wage and fair wage laws, which is all great. It's all wonderful stuff. But but it it, it gives us a different mindset. So when we see something like that, this guy goes out all day, he works, he has to come in, fix the food, serve the master, and then after the master's done, then he can eat. And every bone in our body says, well, that's not not fair, right? That's not right. But in that culture, fair or not, that was the way it worked. And we can't impose our view back then and say, well, this parable makes no sense. Well, it makes perfect sense to them because that was the culture that they lived in. The master wasn't there to serve the slave the slave was there to serve the master. That was his obligation. That was his responsibility. So again, let's be very careful. We talked about this before when we read parables, that we don't impose our current worldview on 2,000 something, 2,000 years ago because that'll, that'll twist its meaning. So in that day and age when Jesus is telling this parable, they understood the duty of a slave. They understood the duty of a servant. And they understood that duty requires no thanks. You see, beyond the slavery aspect, when I read this parable, there's two things about this parable that bother me as an American, a 21st century American. The first is the whole aspect of slavery. That bothers me. But the other thing that really bothers me is the guy comes in, he's been working all day, he cooks the supper, and he doesn't even get a thank you. There there seems to be no appreciation... For, for, for all the work that he does. The, the master does not even say thank you for that for, for working all day, thank you for the meal, or anything like that. Now, that bothers me, and in fact, I think Jesus expects it to bother you because look at verse 9. He actually asks the question, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Jesus is asking him, does he, does he say thank you? See, I just... I mean, these parables, they just fit... We say it over and over again. They fit right in with human nature. Our human nature says, well, where's the thank you? In verse 9, says Jesus says, "Does does he thank him? Does he owe him a thank you? Now, the word thank right there in Greek is charis, okay? Now, we might expect a thank you, but the word charis means more than that. The word charis, which literally means have gratitude... It's used to, to express the idea of a debt of gratitude. You ever said to someone, "I owe you a debt of gratitude." In other words, you've done something for me, and I owe you a debt. In other words, in other words, you've scratched my back; now I need to scratch yours. That's the word "caris." The "caris" has the idea that you've done something for me; now I owe you. So, what Jesus is asking is, he's asking this question: in, in literally, does the work the slave does? Place the master in debt to the slave. Does the master owe the slave something for, for the work that he performs? Yes or no? That's the question that he's asking in the parable. Now, once again, this is a rhetorical question. It doesn't require an answer because all of his listeners, to them, the answer is, is obvious. Of course there's no debt. Of course the master doesn't owe that slave a thank you. He's a slave. He's a servant. He's doing His job. He, that's, that's, that's who He is. That's His responsibility. That's His place in life. The master is the master, the slave is the slave. Now that is the parable. Very short parable. Now here's the application that Jesus makes. He, he turns to His listeners and He says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, words, I don't know if we've... I'm sure some of us that are a little older have noticed this over the past few years. But if you notice how words like duty and commanded and obey, they're not very popular today, are they? Words like duty, which, which used to be very popular in our culture um, down throughout American history, you just don't hear words like that really spoken about very much anymore. It's just a concept that's kind of gone out of, uh, out, of, uh, out of play here. And I think it probably started in the 60s, right? Um, ever since the 60s, it seems like, if you go back and you look at the decades, it seems like it's been more and more and more accepted that everybody, you just do your own thing. You're not really beholden to anybody. You're not beholden to the, to the country. You're not beholden to your parents. You're not beholden to society. You just do your own thing. Make sure you're happy right? And words, like again, like duty and obedience, have just they're just falling out of favor. I went back and looked up the Girl Scout Pledge. I saw somebody mention this. In 1927, this was the original Girl Scout Pledge. It said, on my honor, I will try to do my duty to God and my country to help other people at all times and to obey the Girl Scout laws. But if you go look at the Girl Scout Pledge today, they changed a couple of words. It now says, on my honor, I will try to serve God in my country to help people at all times, and to live by the Girl Scout law. You see, they replace duty and obey with serve and live by. And, and we may think, well, you know, the meaning's about the same. And, and it is, but it's definitely softer. Because words like serve and live by have the idea of choice, where words like duty and obey have the, have the, have the idea of, of requirement. Everybody with me? And so they softened it down a little bit because they don't want you to think it's a requirement, something you have to do, it's something you choose to do. But let me tell you, in the Bible, and especially in today's parable, God will not allow us to drop the ideas of duty and obey from our relationship to God, okay? To be real disciples, we must do our duty. To be real disciples, we must obey, it's not, a, it's not a choice, it's a requirement, okay? I was thinking a lot this week about this word, duty. I looked up the definition of it, and this is a really good definition. Obligatory tasks, conduct, or service, or functions that arise from one's position. It could be your position in life, it could be your position in a group, it could be your position on a job, whatever the case may be. You may be the boss, you may be a leader, you may be a, the, the husband, the wife, the father, the mother. Whatever your position is on the job or in a group, you have certain obligatory requirements, things you have to do. And I was thinking again about this word. If you look at that verse, watch what Jesus said in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, there's that, there's that concept of obedience Say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our what? Our duty. What was our obligation? What was our required service? I was trying to think this week about one place in life that would really help us understand duty. As just normal people. You see, a lot of times when we first think about duty, if I said, give me an example of duty, most of us would say, well, maybe a soldier. Right a marine a, 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 whatever the case may be that they have a duty to their to their country, right, and we think of that we think about maybe on a job like a like a police officer in fact we 'll say a police officer is what on he's on duty right so we understand that concept of a soldier, we understand that concept of a police officer, but what about us? What about just if we 're not a soldier or we 're not a police officer where where do we how can we understand duty in our, in our life? Well, it turns out that the place that we can understand it best is really close to us, and that is in the family, especially as parents. You see, if you are a parent, you have certain duty to your children. You have a moral obligation. You have a moral responsibility to your children. Yes or no? Absolutely you do. And can I tell you as a parent... You will fulfill that duty every single day, and you never once are even thinking about thank yous right you're not thinking i'm going to do this for them, so at the end of the day they're going to say thank you you're not thinking about reward, are you because if you are you're wasting your time that ain't none of that's going to happen see you don't you don't you don't do all the things you do you don't fulfill all those obligations to them out of a sense of one day I'm going to get a reward. One day I'm going to get a big thank you. No, you do it today because you love them. You just love them. You, you enjoy doing it. You want to do it. It's got no, nothing to do with the future. It's just about that relationship. So we do our duty as parents every single day, and we don't expect a thank you or a reward. It's not even in our, it's not even in our mind. You see, I think this is the relationship that Jesus wants us to see with our Heavenly Father in this parable. We are to fulfill our obligations to Him. We are to obey His commands. We are to do our duty to Him, not out of the sense that one day I'm going to get a reward, one day I'm going to get a big well done. No, we just do it because we love Him. Because we just love that we want to be like Him. We just He's done so much for us, we just, we just want to do for Him. That's the relationship that we should have, not because, again, we're looking in the future. We just do it today because He's our God, He's our Savior, He's our Lord, He's our He's our Master. And it's our duty to serve Him. And we do it gladly and we do it joyfully. Now, I want to in our last few minutes, I want to notice you I want you to notice a couple more things about this last verse. Notice the change in person in the parable. You see, at the beginning of the parable. Jesus says, which one of you having a servant, or which one of you having a slave, a doulos? See, at the very beginning, he puts them in the place of the master because he wants wants them to affirm that a slave should do his duty. He's asking them, shouldn't this be the way it is? And in their mind, they're thinking, yeah. You know, the master's the master, the slave the slave. That's just the way it is. If I had a servant or a slave, I would expect them to do their duty. But in the end, he flips it completely around, and he says, so you also. See, now he puts them in the place of the servant, them in place of the slave. He said, see, you're the slaves in the parable. See, he says, so you also. See, this parable is clearly directed at people who feel as if somehow God owes them a debt of gratitude for their service or for their acts of piety. That somehow, because of all the work I've done over the years, that somehow I've earned special treatment. That God owes me something for all this work that I've been doing. For all these years that I get up every Sunday morning, and I come and I teach Sunday school, and all those hours that I prepare, that somehow God owes me something. This is what this parable is all about. All this work you do, you think God owes you something, Derek? Well, here's this parable, and it's just for for you. See, in fact, to drive this home, I want you to watch... This is very, very interesting. Watch what he says. So you also, when you have done... What's that word? All that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. Now, this word, unworthy, is very, very interesting. It's only used twice in the book of Luke. Only twice. One time is here. The other time is, you want to guess? It's in the parable of the talents that we just studied. Remember, the five-talent guy turned his into ten. The two-talent guy turned his into four. The one-talent guy hit it in the ground. And when the master came back, he said, and cast that unworthy servant into outer darkness. That's the only other time that word is used here. In, uh, in the book of Luke, and, and, and again today. So you've got, look at what he's saying here. You've got one servant in the, book of Luke, in the uh, parable of the talents who does absolutely nothing, and he is called an unworthy servant. But then in today's parable, you've got another servant who has done all that he was commanded. And Jesus said, say, I am an what? Unworthy. Now, what's going on here? One of them does nothing. One of them does everything. And Jesus says they're both un- unworthy. Now, when he says that we're unworthy, he's not saying that the work that we do is of no value. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he wants us to understand that as servants of God or slaves of God, we gain no bonus points. We don't earn any merit from our service. God doesn't owe us any caris. He doesn't owe us a debt of gratitude for everything that we, we do. You see, his point is this. You can never work your way into God's debt. He owes you absolutely nothing, even if you were to obey every single one of his commands. All of them. He still owes you absolutely nothing. In the end, any rewards you get, any well done, any accolades... They all come from grace and grace alone. It doesn't have anything to do with how you work. You see, the blessings of God are ours because we're adopted as His, as his children, which, by the way, comes straight from grace. Again, God doesn't owe us not anything. He gives it to us freely. In fact, in this relationship, it is us who owes Him everything, and He owes us nothing. Real quickly... I want us to be see this. There's a there's a parable here today about a, a servant and a master, and and if I ask you today, who are you in this relationship with God? We would all say, well, we're we're the servant, but the question is, do we act like that? If I if I ask you for a minute, think about your prayer life. What do you pray about? When you pray, what what are your prayers like? Are they like this? God, please help me help my business succeed. God, please help me get a raise. Please help me get an A on this test. Please save this family member. Please heal my mother. Please make this car last just one more year. Yes or no? Aren't we just, aren't we sometimes just treating God like He's a genie in a bottle and He's granted us 10 wishes? God, do this. 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 But see, here's the thing. We're always asking him to do the work, but aren't we the servant? Shouldn't our prayers be more servant prayers, where we come to God? God, what do you want me to do today? God, 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 help help me to go reach John for Christ. God, help. What do you want me to do with this money? Who do you want me to give it to? What do you want me to do? Not every prayer is about you. Do everybody with me. Now listen. Don't get me wrong. Please don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm going a little bit overboard to make a point. I understand that it's absolutely right and good to go to God and ask Him to meet our needs. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's good. That's nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying that if that's all we ever do, If all we ever do is ask Him to do all the work and we never come to Him and say, God, what do you want me to do? Then there's something sometimes that can get a little out of whack in this relationship. Remember, He is God and we are the slaves. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought with a price. You were purchased. You were bought. Uh, Paul says in Romans, You were slaves of sin. Now you are slaves of righteousness. See, He owns us. He is our master. We are the slaves. We should be looking to serve Him. And after we've done all that He's asked us to do, it's still all about grace. See, God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't even owe us a reward. He doesn't owe us a thank you. He doesn't owe us a well done. There is absolutely no debt on His part. We are the debtors. We owe Him everything. Now... As I close, why is this such a big deal to understand? See, I, one of the things I've gotten out of the parables, this is our 30th lesson in the parables. Um, and one of the things that I've seen of this is that, you know, you can't take one parable. Every parable teaches something about the kingdom of God. But you, you can't just take one parable and build a theology off of it. Every parable teaches a little something different. And when you put them all together, it's, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. That's when you get the picture of the kingdom of God. You know, the parable of the talents is teaching us how important it is to work and to serve. But then we come today, and, and, and this parable teaches us that after we've done all that work, it's still all about grace. Don't think God owes you anything because of that. It's still all about grace. Why is it such a big deal that we understand this? Let me give you an example. In 1961, I wasn't born yet, John F. Kennedy stood and gave his... Uh, um, Gave his uh, inaugural address, and he said this famous statement, which he plagiarized, by the way. In case you didn't know that, he said, "Ask not." We all know this statement, right? "Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." See, that was a time coming out of the '50s, not early '60s, when people still understood duty. Yes or no? They still understood duty to country. But as this concept of duty to country has eroded from society over the last 60 or 70 years, I want you to notice what else has changed. Nobody asks what can you do for your country anymore. Now it's all about what can your country do for you, right? It's all about How, how's my country going to take care of me? Where, where's my piece of the pie, right? It's not about us. And see, there's a paradigm here that we need to understand that's true in, in life. That exact same paradigm can exist in our relationship with God. If you lose sight of the fact that it's you who owe a duty to God, what you do is you start moving away from that and you start moving toward the fact that now God owes something to me. That's why this is such a big deal. Because once you lose fact that I owe Him something, then as you move away from that, it becomes, what does He owe me? God owes me. And if we're not careful, we'll even start seeing grace as an entitlement. That somehow that we have these inalienable rights, uh, constitutional rights as citizens of the kingdom of God, that somehow God owes us this stuff. And this parable is flying in the face of this and saying, guys, God owes you nothing. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It is all about grace and grace alone. And when we get that right, when we understand that, that I'm I'm working for Him because I love Him, it's not to earn anything. I can't earn anything from Him. Then we begin to understand that all the things that we do get from Him, all these great promises, this inheritance that's set aside in the heavens and is waiting for me, all of that is just by grace. I'm not earning anything. You go back to last week's talent, a parable of the talents. You remember in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one, his master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Boy, you have been faithful in a little. I'm going to set you over much. Enter into the joy of the, work, of the, of the Lord. That's all grace. That's all grace. When God says, thank you, well done, that's grace. When God says, I'm going to set you over much, that's grace. It's not because somehow you've earned it or you've merited it. You remember what Paul said in, in uh, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians. He said, I worked harder than all of them, but what? But it was God's grace working in me. It was Him empowering me to do those things. Listen, if you've been serving the Lord and doing something for year after year after year after year, you've got to understand, it's God that's empowering you to do that day after day, after week after week, after month after month, after year after year. That's Him. If he was to withdraw his hand, you'd fall flat on your face tomorrow. You'd quit and go back to the, back to the pigsty that you came from. It's him. It's grace. He, he's all involved up in this. And it's just what a great God he is. I mean, think about this. I was thinking about this week with my little granddaughter. They, we were down in Orlando, and they went to some crayon place or something. Anyway, the other day, we were back in the hotel room, and she was coloring, and she colored something, and it was horrible. I mean it was awful, right? I mean she couldn't stay in the line. She it wasn't anywhere good. But you know what I did? What do you think I did? Oh my gosh, that's just that is beautiful. That's wonderful. That is the best thing I've ever seen. Listen, that's exactly what God's doing for you. Your your efforts at their very best are pitiful. They're pitiful. And God just says, Way to go, Derek. Wait, man, you are awesome. You are so great. Just keep doing what you're doing. He encourages us. He rewards us for our pitiful efforts. That's the grace of God. That's the kind of God that we serve. Listen, our access to God's throne, the blessings, the rewards, all of that stuff, they're all wonderful things. But let me tell you, they're not granted to us because of who we are. They're given to us because of who He is. He's that Father that just says, that says to us, man, way to go. And it is, and he's knowing, man, that's the, that's the worst drawing I've ever seen in my life, but way to go. I mean, that's the kind of God that, that we serve. It is all about grace. Real quick application. For me, the parable of the unworthy servant really has two lessons. Number one, and don't miss this, we're expected to do our duty. We are expected to do our duty. Don't think, God has given you talents... God has given you something, some kind of ability, and now He's given you opportunities. I said last week, it may be one thing. He may have given you the gift to be an encourager, for example. And He puts you as a teacher in a school, or He puts you uh, or wherever on your job, and He's saying, there you go. There's your opportunity. What are you going to do with it? And you can't stand in heaven one day and say, God, but I I just really didn't have... I couldn't speak. I I, I wasn't a good public speaker. He said, I don't care about any of that. I gave you one thing to do. What did you do with it? Did you bury it in a hole in the ground? Or did you maximize the opportunity? Listen, we are to work and to serve our master to fulfill our obligations and responsibilities to him. And there is no excuse. There is no excuse. We are to work. Number two... And we are to do so without any expectation of earning our way into the kingdom. This isn't got anything to do with earning our way. Listen, Jesus Christ has saved us by dying on the cross and paying for our sins. We have put he's, He did all the earning yes or no. He's paid the ransom. He did all that stuff. In fact, for us to turn around and try to earn it, it that, that's shameful. That's like saying what He did is not enough. We, we shouldn't shame Him in that way. Don't even try to earn it. We, we serve Him because, like, just like a father and a child, uh, we, we serve Him because we love Him. That's the relationship. See, the motivation for Christian service shouldn't be reward. Listen, there are rewards. That's awesome. But that's not our motivation. Our motivation should be our love for God. We don't, we don't serve to earn our salvation because Jesus has already done the work for us. We serve Him because we love Him. In 1776, the guy with one of the coolest names ever, Augustus Toplady, I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you beat that? He wrote a song called Rock of Ages that we all know. And there's, a, there's a, a, a stanza in that. It says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, this guy, top lady, understood that your best efforts are just filth. That your best, you can't come to him with anything. Look what I did. Here's my ticket. You You can't do that, right? At the end, with everything that we do, if we do all that he commands us, we still remain unprofitable, unworthy servants. Nothing merits our, no matter how exemplary our service, how great we've done, not if you're Billy Graham. You can pick the greatest man that's of faith that you know, and, and, and it's all grace. It's all grace. It'll always be grace. We cannot offer anything to God to procure His favor. All right, next week, we're going to be in Luke 16. I, I've said there are a lot of parables. There are about f- roughly 40-something parables. There, there's a, you know Sometimes people say, well, that's a parable, that's not a parable. There's roughly about 40 parables. We've talked about some parables are misunderstood. You remember when we did the, the, uh, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we said that was the most misunderstood parable? Next week's parable is the most controversial parable. Okay, Of all the parables, it is the most controversial by far. And that is the parable of the dishonest manager. You'll find that in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, if you want to read ahead. Let's pray. Father...